Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, A Mission for Ministry, today. So turning your bios to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, We Interpret the Bible, Part 2. Second Timothy is Paul's last letter. Paul is aware that he's soon going to be executed, and so this letter, 2 Timothy, is his instruction to Timothy, and through Timothy, to all the ministers of the gospel who are going to carry on after him. Most faithful preachers have taken 2 Timothy 4, 2 to heart, which says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete patience and teaching. See, these words are the marching orders to every generation of Christian leaders that follow. But I want to stress an earlier instruction. Going back from chapter 4 to chapter 2, verse 15, listen to Paul's instruction there. He says, Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. See, Paul knows he can't just preach the word. If Timothy's going to preach the word, he's going to have to give himself to a lifetime of studying the word. And then when we get to the end of 2 Timothy, we read a little sentence that's often overlooked. See, Paul wants Timothy to come and visit him. And as he comes, Timothy is to bring a few items along. So 2 Timothy 4.13 says, When you come, bring the cloak that I left at Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. See, most scholars think that Paul is referring to books and most likely a copy of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that, when you think about it, is a telling truth. The Apostle Paul, the master of Scripture, is now nearing the end of his own life. And a number of things occupy his mind, but one is, bring my Bible and the parchments where I can take notes. I have to study. We have to imagine Paul at the very end of his life, still straining forward to do the very best to present himself to God as a workman who would not be ashamed, rightly handling or rightly studying, rightly understanding and rightly applying the Word of God. In our day, there's a false notion abroad that Bible interpretation is in the eye of the beholder. After all, so many people disagree on various interpretations of the Bible. Who are we to insist in one interpretation of the Bible over against the other? Isn't all of this simply a matter of one's own opinion? How is anyone in the place to say they prefer their view of the Bible over the next person's? And during this week in which I'm attempting to lay our foundation here at Back to the Bible Canada, I've wanted to talk first about our confidence in the Bible's truthfulness, that is, on all matters that it addresses. But that's only half of the equation. We might be convinced of the accuracy, the infallibility, and the inerrancy of the Bible, but we must address the matter of how we understand the contents of the Bible. And yesterday, I began by talking about the Holy Spirit's role in our interpretation of the Bible. The Holy Spirit helps us welcome the truths of the Scripture and not to reject them. We find ourselves rejoicing in the truth that we are helpless to save ourselves. We willingly agree with God that we've sinned, that we're unworthy of his grace. We delight in the truth that we were helpless and at just the right time, God sent his son into the world to save us. Instead of defending our own pride, we willingly lay it down and find joy in glorifying God alone. 
as Paul said in Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And that's a wonderful truth. I will never boast in myself, for there's nothing to boast about. Whatever I have, I've received by grace from a God who is to be glorified. And that most precious gift of all, my salvation, of that I take no credit either. Even my faith in Jesus was given to me as a gift. I now boast in Christ and not in me. And that's what the Holy Spirit has wrought in us. And for that reason, we now approach the Bible with a new set of eyes. Instead of twisting it to make it say what we want it to say, or instead of fighting with its truths or being offended by its teaching, I now eagerly study it to allow God to inform me. See, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is that we, who have received of the Spirit, no longer look to the Bible to justify what we believe or to encourage us in our plans, but rather we look to the Bible to tell us what we are to believe, that we submit to God's plans. It's a completely new way of thinking. But even to state things that way does not take away the hard work that Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So I'm going to go through some principles of Bible study. And let me start at a most basic level. Those who hold a high view of Scripture, that is the inspired word of God, that it's the infallible and inerrant in the original manuscripts also hold that the Bible forms a unity. That is to say, we believe that since God only speaks truth, that the Bible contains no contradictions. God does not say one thing at one moment and then another at another. The divine author of Scripture is consistent in everything he says. Now, if that's to be accepted, we have to assume that it would be false for us to interpret any Scripture to be at variance with the other texts of Scripture. Let's see if I can give a fairly easy example. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know, some of you might be aware that the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's an aberrant sect, has argued that John chapter 1 verse 1 has been improperly translated. Since Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in the deity of Jesus, they've translated John 1.1 to say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Not God, but a God, a lesser God. Now, without getting into the grammatical arguments about why that's a very unlikely way to translate that Greek sentence, I mean, that in itself is an interesting discussion, but let me get back to the matter of the unity of the whole Bible. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11 says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Now, of course, that's not the only time in the Bible where we have the statement that there is but one God. What's interesting about the Isaiah passage is he also says that there's only one Savior. And so to argue from John 1 verse 1, that it can actually be translated that the word became a God or a lesser God, well, that's entirely contradictory to the unity of the whole Bible. Now, from that, we come to one of the basic rules of Bible interpretation, a rule that's commonly known as the rule of faith. Let's see if I can articulate that. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is probably the best-known confession of English-speaking Christians 
who stand in the history of the Reformation. So the Westminster Confession says, and I quote, the infallible rule of interpretation is scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. In other words, when one comes to a Bible text that might be difficult to understand, however we interpret that text, we're not permitted to interpret that Bible text in such a way that would allow us to put that text into conflict with the whole. Furthermore, as Martin Luther and many good interpreters after him have said, Scripture interprets itself. Well, on the whole, that's an excellent rule. It's precisely what the New Testament has done for us. Rightly understood, the New Testament is an inspired interpretation of the true intent of the law and the prophets seen through the prism of Christ and his cross. At the very outset, we're assuming that the Bible is a unity, and so we don't allow an interpretation of any text that breaks the unity of the Bible. But there's a weakness in that rule that all good Bible teachers recognize. When we come to a difficult portion of Scripture, we're not permitted to willy-nilly go to another portion of Scripture that we love more and then argue that that one text takes precedence over another. That's not permitted. Each text of the Bible has to be allowed to speak for itself. We're not forcing an interpretation on a text. And it's for that reason that we must insist that no one interprets Scripture well if they're unfamiliar with the whole. See, one of the reasons that I have lived under the discipline of reading through my whole Bible every year is so that I won't lose sight of the forest for the trees. After reading through the Bible at least 40 times and more, and after having committed myself every year to continue to do the same, I find myself in a much better place to understand any given text. Let's do an easy example. Let's assume you're reading a novel. In the process, you're trying to understand one very difficult paragraph. Are you free to interpret what the author meant to say in a way that's out of keeping with the entire book? Of course not. And so it is with interpreting the Bible. The rule of faith says that God has given us a unified whole. And even though we may struggle with the difficult passage or our understanding of that passage, we can't interpret a passage in such a way that breaks the unified message of the whole. We're missing you. And the opportunities we've had in the past to meet you face-to-face, share in times of worship and laughter, and the study of God's Word. So enough is enough. Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, and In Doubt are excited to invite you to our 2021 special virtual event called The Gathering, coming on Sunday, September 19th. Enjoy an exclusive message from Dr. John Newfeld, hosted by Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and musical guests that will enrich our time together in worship. Last September, people from right across Canada attended online in their offices, homes, on their computers, or even their phones. It was so encouraging celebrating our common passion for the Bible and the significance of teaching biblical truths to a new generation. More information is on the way, so keep an eye out at backtothebible.ca or sign up for the daily audio mail or monthly ministry email update while you're there, or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. 
Good Bible interpreters have read their Bible through many, many times. I wouldn't allow for a teacher or a preacher who's not worked his or her way through the Bible many times. It's imperative. With practiced care, a good Bible teacher will combine an understanding of the whole of Scripture and then be careful to do a detailed analysis of a given text. You know, I thought about the best way to explain this, and I think a little history lesson is in order. By the time of the 16th century, the Roman church had become fascinated with a spiritual interpretation of the Bible. The Roman church taught that only those people who were given to chastity, watchfulness, and prayer, which were priests, only they were in a position to understand the spiritual side of Scripture. And so the Roman church said that the true interpretation of the Bible came only under a unique spiritual status. Rome believed that they alone were the infallible interpreter of the Bible, and they often used the Bible to bolster their own power. But then along came the Reformers. Martin Luther insisted on something he called sensus plenar, which is a Latin term for the plain meaning of the text. And that's how the story of the Reformation began. It really goes back to an event that happened to Martin Luther, often called his Tower Experience, in 1514. He was in the tower room of an Augustinian cloister. He spent long hours sitting before an open Bible, pondering its contents. Luther had been given the task of teaching the book of Romans to a group of seminary students, and he was intrigued and puzzled by the phrase, the righteousness of God. He found that phrase in Romans 1.17, and then in chapter 3, verse 5, 3.21, 3.22, and then in Romans 10.3. Five times, and on every occasion, the phrase was very important. But what did Paul mean when he said the righteousness of God? Well, the Roman Catholic Church taught that the term always referred to God's justice in punishing sinners and in rewarding the upright. But the more Luther examined the phrase, he knew it didn't fit. It was Romans 1.17 that really tripped him up. You know, that passage says, for in it, and here it refers to the gospel or the saving news of Jesus. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And here was Luther's problem. How could Paul call the righteousness of God the good news that saves sinners? I mean, eventually he realized that the phrase, the righteousness of God, was an expression that related to Christ's work on the cross, where God could regard the sinner as righteous through Christ. You see, Christ's work on the cross declared how God could be righteous in condemning his son so that the sinner could find mercy. And that was wonderful news. Luther had been so overwhelmed by his own sin. And he thought the phrase, the righteousness of God, as the most overwhelmingly frightening thing he could imagine. He even wrote that he had come to hate the righteousness of God. And that's how God would condemn Luther for his sin. But now as he studied Romans 3, 23 to 26, he saw that God had found a way to remain righteous and yet forgive the sinner in the death of his son. And once Luther saw that in the text, it was like a burden rolled from his shoulder and he felt like paradise had opened to him. Now what Luther learned in that tower with the book of Romans before him, that changed the world. But here for our purposes is something that shouldn't be understated. Luther observed that he had made this remarkable study of Scripture not by allowing the Holy Spirit to zap him with some spiritual insight. That wasn't it at all. 
He made this discovery by understanding the meaning of the words and the phrases in the Bible. He paid attention to the meaning of words that Paul had written using the tools of Bible study based on grammar, the context, the history of the text. So don't miss the point. The way in which the Protestant evangelical church came into being was the result of historical, grammatical method of Bible study. It means paying attention to the actual wording of the Bible. It means reading the text in its context. And that means that anyone with appropriate reading skills can understand the Bible. The Bible was written for everyone to understand. Now, those of you who are historians might remember what Luther said at the very famous Diet of Worms. And no, Luther was not on a worm diet. Worms was a town in Germany and a diet, well, that was an imperial council. In the year 1521, Luther had been summoned to come to the city of Worms and give an answer for the things that he had written. The charge against him was that he was contradicting the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. I'd like to quote what Luther said here. They're among the most famous words in church history. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimonies of Holy Scripture or evident reason, for I believe neither the Pope nor the councils alone, since it has been established, they often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures adduced by me, and my conscience has been taken captive by the Word of God. And I am neither able nor willing to recant, since it is neither safe nor right to act against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Here I stand, he said. Well, where did he stand? Well, he stood with both feet in the Bible, reading the Bible as it was written. Every godly Bible teacher in history will say something similar. When being questioned about what he or she is teaching, the good Bible teacher will say, if you can show me where I've made my error in handling the text, I'll gladly change my mind. But if you can't show me where I've understood the text wrongly, I will not recant. I will stand with the text of the Bible. Here I stand. I can do no other. Now then, that's why we right here at Back to the Bible Canada function as we do. We do not do a great deal of topical teaching because we mistrust it as a principal means of Bible study. Yeah, topical Bible study does have a place, and it can be quite valuable, but it's never to be the principal means of doing Bible study. You don't start by saying, what does the Bible say about, well, prayer, or how to be encouraged in times of distress, or whatever. That's because what has often happened is that people begin to quote one verse here and then another verse there, and then they use the Bible to say the kind of things they want it to say. Verses are often snatched out of context. And the opportunity to allow this kind of an approach to the Bible to lead us astray is pronounced. See, one of the most remarkable things that came out of the Protestant Reformation was that the Reformers insisted that preachers in pulpits must get back to doing what had been done historically, verse-by-verse Bible teaching. Ulrich Zwingli, he was the leader of the Swiss Reformation. He lived from 1484 to 1541. In the year 1519, He was invited to become the priest of the largest and most influential church in Switzerland, the Grossmünster Church, in the city of Zurich. Zwingli was told that he had to concern himself with only two things. Make sure the sacraments were rightly observed and make sure the budget of the church was in proper order. I mean, after that, they didn't much care what he did. Would he agree to that? And to that, Zwingli said, this is what I have deemed to do. 
I will preach the first chapter of Matthew. I'll follow it through verse by verse, line by line, understanding the context, making application to the lives of people. And then he said, after I've completed that task, I'm going to be preaching Matthew 2. You know, I have my own personal memory of this thing. I'd just been at a denominational meeting, and I was floored by the doctrinal irregularities that had been expressed there. After that, I flew out to Chicago. I was attending one of my Doctor of Ministry classes. I sat around a table with about 15 other pastors from a variety of different denominational settings, and we had only one thing in common. Each one of these men had a commitment to verse-by-verse Bible teaching, and they'd done it for many years. During that class, we talked about the same doctrinal issues that we had discussed at the denominational meeting, and I was overwhelmed by the similarity in that class. See, I'm not saying that all verse-by-verse Bible teachers agree on everything. That would be naive. It would be untrue. But I'm saying that there is a remarkable agreement on the major doctrines of the Christian faith. And that brings me to my point about interpreting the Bible. Reading and studying the Bible the way it's written leads one to become a confessional Christian. Very few people who hold to the inerrancy of the Bible and then the unity of the Bible and then the grammatical historical method of doing Bible study will deny the doctrine of the Trinity or the full deity and humanity of Christ or justification by grace through faith alone or the visible return of Christ to judge the living and the dead or for that matter, some of the sensitive sexual issues that are so rampant in our day. You see, we at Back to the Bible Canada like to say we fall into that same category. When we say we teach the Bible, we're saying both that we believe the Bible and that we faithfully interpret the Bible. We say that this Bible teaching is teaching you can trust because we're committed to teaching the Bible as it stands written. We're not enamored by a new teaching. We're committed to delivering the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We interpret the Bible in just that fashion. Thanks, John. You know, I was wondering, as you're speaking, is there a possibility that we can discipline ourselves to read the Bible, even memorize Scripture, but still miss the point? (laughs) Well, it's happened all the time. And uh, I, I think it's very important for us to remember that when we memorize, let's also be sure that we understand something about the context of what we're memorizing. So, you know, the Bible is communicating to us whole thoughts. And uh, we do our best to comprehend those. And, you know, we're helped also when we're taught by good Bible teachers to do that. So, yeah, we, we can't just memorize. We have to understand. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, A Mission for Ministry, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. June is one of the most significant months of the year financially for the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Like every family, individual, and organization across the country, we've had to adjust our expenses this past year. But despite the challenges and because of your consistent support, we continue to be committed to making all of our Bible teaching programming and resources available without interruption. To help maintain this commitment, a group of generous ministry supporters who share our heart for Bible teaching have offered to double your gifts this month. The June ministry target for our fiscal year end is $325,000. 
Would you help to provide a financial gift towards that goal? Remember, every dollar you give will be matched up to $75,000, so your gift has doubled the impact. To make your fiscal year-end gift today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.